0: So we're continuing to follow the Buddha on their last journey. I think it's a a very touching story because it humanizes the Buddha. When we see a Buddha image on the altar, various golden Buddha images with different cultural attributes, it's a little hard to uh, identify with this person who was a person who had a body and the body grew older. And so some of these little details uh, in the Pali Canon are really, to me, very touching. So the rainy season has arrived at this point in the Buddha's journey. And uh, the monsoon rains during the rainy season in in India make it very difficult to travel because the roads, and we don't know if he was on roads all the time or paths or probably both, have turned to to thick mud. Uh, Streams and rivers have become too dangerous to cross and often overflow their banks, so areas are flooded. And many creatures emerge from the ground that the bhikkhus and bhikkhunis, the ordained might tread on and kill. We've seen this happen here. When it rains hard, the earthworms come up because they can drown in their burrows and we have to rescue them and try not to step on them. And the Buddha tells this large group of followers, ordained and lay people, to find shelter with generous people in the city of of Vaishali for the three months of the rainy season. So they all leave Ambapali's grove and stay in this... uh, The Buddha says he's going to leave And stay in a nearby village while they all stay in Basali, which is a city, so there are many more uh, places that they could be taken in and hosted. But he himself is going to the small nearby village called Beluva. And then we go to the canon. But when the Blessed One had entered upon the rainy season, there arose in him a severe illness and sharp and deadly pains came upon him. And the Blessed One endured them mindfully, clearly comprehending and unperturbed. Then it occurred to the Blessed One, it would not be fitting if I came to my final passing without addressing those who attended on me, without taking leave of the community of bhikkhus. And bhikkhunis, then, let me suppress this illness by strength of will, resolve to maintain the life process, and live on. And this is a phenomenon that you may have seen if you've been with many people who are dying. It's a common phenomenon reported by hospice nurses and workers, that someone who's dying is able to hang on until a certain event occurs or until a certain person comes to visit them before they die. It happened when I was a child, actually. The minister in our family's church in upstate New York uh, was quite old. I I thought he was quite old. He was probably younger than I am now. I don't know. (laughs) But he had white hair. (laughs) And... um, He was a wonderful minister, very generous, very warm-hearted. And uh, the church had a ceremony to pay off their mortgage, like we paid off our mortgage on the monastery last year. So they had a mortgage-burning ceremony, like we did. Uh, And it was at night. I remember being in the church at night with my parents. And then we learned that during the night, he had died. He was there for the ceremony. Went home, went to bed. His wife was a nurse. She was younger than he was. And uh, when she went to check on him in the morning, he had just peacefully passed away. So that was the first time, you know, my parents said, obviously he held on until this event had happened and he felt that the church was now well founded. So this question comes up in the Buddha's last journey. Is the Sangha well-founded and can the Buddha die? The Blessed One recovered from that illness and soon after his recovery, he came out from his dwelling place and sat down in the shade of the building. So that little detail, you know, he's sitting down in the shade of of a building out of the rain. On a seat prepared for him, then the Venerable Ananda approached the Blessed One, respectfully greeted him, and sitting down at one side, he spoke to the Blessed One, saying, fortunate it is for me, O Lord, to see the Blessed One at ease again. Fortunate it is for me, O Lord, to see the Blessed One recovered. For truly, Lord, when I saw the Blessed One's sickness, it was as though my own body became weak as a creeper. Everything around became dim to me and my senses failed me. Yet, Lord, I still had some little comfort in the thought that the Blessed One would not come to his final passing away until he had given some last instructions respecting the community of bhikkhus. So you can imagine that happening like um, you Harada Roshi is five years older than I am. And he's had to have heart surgery and has had some heart emergencies recently. And so the the desire arises to go and get last instructions from him before it's not possible anymore. And in Ananda's case, he's particularly anxious about this because he has not yet experienced awakening. And so if the Buddha dies, what will happen to him? Though this person who's at the Buddha's side continually for all of his 45 teaching years, 40 teaching years, who's memorized all of his teachings, still has not come to awakening. So you can imagine how he feels as he sees people around him awakening. What will happen to him? Will he lose his chance to awaken if the Buddha dies? So you can feel the fear in him as he begs the Buddha to not pass away until he's given some last instructions. And also then you think of the community. What will happen to the community? So this is why we've had a six-year transition plan here. So that we didn't have the event of I'm teaching with Hogan in France, and the plane crashes, and the abbots are gone, and then what happens to the community? So then the Buddha says, and it, it, to me he sounds a little exasperated Thus spoke the Venerable Ananda, but the Blessed One answered him, saying, What more does the community of bhikkhus expect from me, Ananda? <laughs> I have set forth the Dhamma without making any distinctions of esoteric and exoteric doctrine. There is nothing, Ananda, with regard to the teachings that the Tathagata holds to the last with a closed fist of a teacher who keeps some things back. So the Buddha says, I have expounded everything, everything that I've practiced myself, I've given to you. There's nothing held back. So then uh, the Buddha says to Ananda, Now I am frail Ananda, old, aged, and far gone in years. This is my 80th year and my life is spent. Even as an old cart, Ananda is held together with much difficulty. So the body of the Tathagata is kept going, only with supports. It is Ananda only when the tathagata, or disregarding external objects, with the cessation of certain feelings, attains to and abides in the signless concentration of mind that his body is more comfortable. So the Buddha is working hard at this point to keep his body comfortable enough so that he can go on. Therefore, ananda, be islands unto yourselves, Oh, so Hogan and I have had cataract surgery, so we can still read uh, and write talks and uh, work around here. And I had knee surgery and so on. So all of us, you know, in order to practice, uh, we'll have to do things to bring in support to our body, whether it's a cane or glasses or whatever it is in old age we're almost bound to need some kind of supports, medicine, so on. Therefore, Ananda, be islands unto yourselves, refuges unto yourselves, seeking no external refuge. So the Buddha is saying, I can't be your refuge. Your refuge has to be within you. So we can't depend on, for instance, hallucinogens. We can't depend on having a teacher all the, all, the, all the time around to keep us practicing, to keep us in line. The refuge has to be internal. We have to carry our home, find our home, and carry it within us, or carry it within us and then affirm that it exists. Therefore, Ananda to be islands unto yourselves, refuges unto yourselves, seeking no external refuge, with the Dhamma as your island, the Dhamma as your refuge, seeking no other refuge. And how, Ananda, is a bhikkhu, or bikuni, an island unto themselves, a refuge unto themselves, seeking no external refuge, with the Dhamma as their island, as their refuge, seeking no other refuge. And then he answers this rhetorical question, which he's asked. When they contemplate When they dwell, contemplating the body in the body earnestly, clearly comprehending and mindfully, after having overcome clinging and grief in regard to the world, when they dwell, contemplating feelings in feelings, the mind in the mind, and mental objects in mental objects, earnestly, clearly comprehending and mindfully, after having overcome clinging and grief in regard to the world. Then truly they are islands unto themselves, a refuge unto themselves, seeking no external refuge, having the Dhamma as their island, the Dhamma as their refuge, seeking no other refuge. So, what's he recommending the four foundations of mindfulness? Body as body, feelings, feeling tone as feelings, mind objects and The screen of mind mind awareness, infinite screen of mind awareness. Make that your refuge. The teachings of the Dhamma. So he's very clear. Then um, the Buddha uh, is visited by Mara, the evil one. Kind of the external form of the internal critic like we, you know, in Christianity, it's the devil is the external form, Satan. So Mara comes to the Buddha and appeals to the Buddha and says, you know, you told me that once you had taught the Dharma to sufficient numbers of people and the Sangha was strong enough to continue, then you would die. So, time to die. (laughs) So the Buddha acquiesces and says he will pass away in three months. And then he goes and tells Ananda that he's going to pass away in three months. And Ananda is very distressed and begs him to live longer, but the Buddha is very firm, saying, Haven't I taught you from the very beginning that with all that is dear and beloved, there must be change, separation, and severance of that which is born comes into being, is compounded, that is, made up, like we're made of, ourself is made of non-self elements, and subject to decay, how can one say, how can you say, may it not come to dissolution? All This is the Buddha's final words, all compounded things will dissolve. And that leads us to contemplate what is the glue that holds this idea that we have of a self together that holds what we see in meditation as sensations of the body, thoughts, emotions. What holds that and binds that all together? What is the glue that makes that a self that we then... Fear dissolving. Whether it dissolves in our practice in the zendo, or ultimately it will dissolve when we die. So some of these words that the Buddha spoke are in our chant that we're doing at night, right? All that is dear. Separation. So then the Buddha asks Ananda to assemble all of his followers who are living in and around Vaishali in the hall of the gabled house in the great forest. So we can picture that in our mind. There's There's a great house with a gable roof and a hall in a forest. And when all of his followers have gathered in the hall, he tells them of his impending death and he asks them to continue to practice so that the Dharma will endure after he dies. And then he reviews what he wants them to practice, the essence of his teachings. The four foundations of mindfulness come first again. Isn't that interesting? The seven factors of enlightenment, the noble eightfold path, the five faculties, the five powers. And he says to the students who were gathered, These you should thoroughly learn, cultivate, and develop, so that this gift, the gift of how to end suffering, this is the gift that the Buddha gives us, how we ourselves can learn to end our own suffering. These you should thoroughly learn, cultivate, and develop, so that this gift may long endure for the welfare of gods and human beings. He tells them that he's going to pass away in three months and says, I exhort you, all compounded things will pass away and vanish. Practice earnestly. My years are now full ripe. The lifespan left is short. Departing, I go hence, relying on myself alone. So when we die, all the things that we lean on, all the people, all the objects that we lean on, we can't depend on anymore. We have to rely on what's in here, what this practice has given us. And the Buddha says, be earnest then, be mindful and virtuous with firm resolve, guard your own mind. Those are his last words to this assembly of, in his last admonition, guard your own mind. At night we chant, my deeds are the ground on which I stand. Deeds emerge from thoughts. Thoughts are the ground on which I stand. Our practice works at the origin of suffering, which is within our own mind. And that is the purpose of a long retreat, to quiet the mind, to make the mind spacious, to switch from thinking mode to awareness mode in the mind and watch how suffering is created. So we'll continue this uh, journey, the story of this journey tomorrow. So at work circle, you said an interesting thing. She said, maybe this is as good as it gets. Something to contemplate. Maybe this is as bad as it gets. Maybe this is as mediocre as it gets. (laughs) But the promise of our practice is that it can free us from comparisons and let us enjoy exactly what is. Exactly what is. Exactly what is is good. Exactly here, exactly now. The promise of our practice is that we have the power to recognize and transform our suffering. The power to transform the suffering that we add to the events of our life by letting our mind fall into what the Buddha called the three poisons. Clinging, if only I had that, then I could be happy, or more of that. Aversion. If only I could get rid of this, if only that would go away, then I could be happy. And ignorance, I'll just go numb and wait for this to pass. hope it'll change for something better. So awakening is not in the future. It's not dependent on something happening in the future, something coming to us or going away. Awakening is here, is here now within your own body, heart and mind within this room, within this floor, within the ceiling, within the lamps, within the forest, within the meadow. There's nothing that is not awakening. It has to be here, or we'd be chasing it forever. If you ponder what lies under these three afflictions, these three poisons, clinging and aversion and choosing to ignore. I think you will find, prove this for yourself, fear. Fear of what? We have to ask that. What are we afraid of? Are we afraid of just being aware and at ease, relaxed and content in the moment? Is that why our minds keep jumping away from the present moment? Fear? Fear of what might happen if we just spend most of our time fully aware and resting in the present moment. This is very important to investigate. We spent what a number of weeks, a few months ago at the monastery, investigating why does the mind keep leaving the present moment and wandering into past, future, and fantasy? What is it averse to about the present moment? or what is it finding and clinging to in past and future? Rumi says, fear is the cheapest room in the house. I would rather see you living in better conditions. Mm -hmm. And I often say fear is a very expensive fuel for living a human life. So now let's do another meditation. So you can um, adjust your posture as you wish, as you have been, by leaning up against the wall or lying on your side, on your cushions. However, sitting up is fine, however you're comfortable. So we did a meditation about our anxiety about what will happen to our possessions, watching our possessions disperse. And then there's often anxiety about what will happen to those we leave behind. So we'll look at this directly in this meditation. So coming into the body, full awareness in the body, this body that sits and breathes, Aware of the sensations in your hands. The sensations in our hands are very sensitive and often, our hands are very sensitive and often we can feel a tingling sensation. Hogan calls it tingling aliveness in the hands. And then we can Open our awareness to that tingling elsewhere in the body. Perhaps arising from the billions of cells that are taking care of us all the time. So now please imagine as clearly as you can that you die right now. Suddenly and quietly you slump to the floor if you're sitting up. Or lying down, you collapse on the floor. Your heart stops. Your breathing stops and your body is still. As the body that used to be yours slumps down, your awareness pops out. And you seem to float up to the ceiling where you can look down and watch what's happening. Your awareness is crystal clear. Clearer than it has ever been before. You can see and you can hear but you have no agency. You cannot speak, you cannot act, you can only be aware. You discover that you can move freely through space and also time. As you watch from above, you see a commotion in the zendo people gathering around the slumped body, people searching for a pulse, finding no pulse, doing CPR, sending someone to call for 911. You see everyone's anxious face, perhaps some people are crying. Then the paramedics arrive, come in the door, bringing all of their equipment, Continue to do resuscitation on this body that you no longer inhabit. They put this body on a stretcher, take it out to the ambulance, and depart from the, for the hospital. At the hospital, in the emergency room, they continue resuscitation efforts with this body that you no longer inhabit. But to no avail. They cannot restore this body to life. The body that you once called me is covered in a sheet and wheeled to the morgue. Then you watch family and friends being called. How do they react? And then word spreads from your family and friends. Maybe to coworkers people in other organizations you belong to. How do they react? Watch what occurs as this news that you have died spreads through the community. Now, move through time to your memorial service or your funeral. Again, watching from above, what do you see, what do you hear? Perhaps this now lifeless body is there. Perhaps just an urn of ashes. Perhaps there's music people giving speeches about the activities of this body when it was alive. Perhaps people are crying. What do you see at this memorial service? Where would it be held? And what would be happening? Now, move through time again to one month since this body died. Look again at how people are doing. Partners, children, ex-partners, your family, co-workers, even your old possessions? What's happened to your clothing, your shoes? How are these people doing one month after this body that you once inhabited has died? Now fast-forward to six months, six months after the body died. Watch these people who were so important in your life and you to them. How are they doing? What are they doing? Now, fast forward an entire year. Perhaps there's a memorial service for you at a year. How are all the people that you love doing? What is their memory of you? Now move to five years after your death. Five years have passed. Many things have changed in the world. What has happened to all the people who are important to you and you to them? How are they doing? Now move forward 25 years. 25 years after you died. After your body died, your awareness is still alive. In 25 years, what will be people's memory of you? How will they feel when they remember you? Now, fast-forward 100 years, 100 years, what's happened to your body? What's happened to all the elements of your body? Whether it was buried in the ground, or composted, or burned into ashes, what has happened to all those elements? What have they become? a hundred years. Now fast forward two hundred years. Two thousand two hundred and twenty-three. Two hundred years from the time your body died. Is there anyone who will remember you And how? If people are going through an old photo album and they see a picture, will they recognize it as you? Does anything remain that was your life? What remains of the body elements? What remains of your practice? Of all your learning, all your writing, all your creating? All the loving-kindness practice you did, all the clarification of mind? Does anything remain? Be curious. Has anyone inherited it? Does anything remain of your mind except this great awareness? Now, bring your awareness back into this body that is actually still alive, that is breathing, that has a beating heart. Feel the tingling aliveness in your hands. And in the rest <clears throat> and in the rest of your body, feel what it is to be inhabiting. Again, an alive body. And when you're ready, if your eyes are closed, open your eyes and sit up. Or adjust your posture. The poet Rilke says, Love and death are the great gifts that are given to us. Mostly they are passed on unopened. Together in this session, we are opening the gift of death to discover what we can learn and unlearn from it. Thank you.